Before we start today's episode, I just want to ask the listeners, that is you, for a massive favour. I don't usually do this, frankly, because I forget every single year. But this year, thanks to the lovely Becca on Twitter, I have an actual opportunity to ask people to vote. It is the British Podcast Awards season, and it would be really amazing if you could vote for Real Life Ghost Stories in the Listener's Choice Award. You just need to go to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote and type in Real Life Ghost Stories into the search bar. And then you'll be sent like a confirmation email. And in order to make your vote count, you need to click the button on the email. And that is it. It literally only takes a minute. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. It is a really quick process. I am under no illusions that Real Life Ghost Stories would win. But if I get shortlisted, it is great advertising for the podcast. And that's it. This is a totally indie podcast. I have no intervention from anybody else. I don't have a team. I don't have, you know, researchers or editors or people working on my marketing or an agent. I don't have anything like that. It is literally just me. So if I can find a way to get some free advertising in there, I'm all about it. So if you could vote, that'd be great. Also, you can only vote for Real Life Ghost Stories once, but you can vote for as many podcasts as you like. So if you have a podcast that you love, please be sure that you sling them a vote as well, especially if they're an indie podcast. I obviously voted for The Poisoner's Cabinet because they're my friends and they make a great podcast. And if you have a podcast that you love, just throw them a vote because you never know who's like looking at the votes, who's looking at what votes are coming in. And it might be really good for an indie podcast that you love. The link to vote will be in the description of this episode. It's britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Thank you so much. Hello and welcome to episode 161 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Lillian Mai, Amber Saunders, Molly and Garrett, Carmen Smoot, Naomi Blakey, Molly K. Harney, Amy Pickering, Norma, Kyle Ferguson, Simon Hurst, Catherine, Brad, Roisin Ward, Alero Ojadegbe Tambakakis, Emma, Julie Finland Powell, Sean Alling, Bill Williamson, Hannah Levy, Carlo J. Lingesso. Thank you all so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week. Our film review this week is a classic, an absolute 90s bop. It is The Crow. The Crow was released in 1994. It has 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Eric Draven, a young poet and guitarist, is resurrected back to life by a crow. The crow guides Eric to his killers and he decides to give his killers a taste of their own medicine. Now I gotta say before I start, right, I'd never seen this film. I tweeted about the fact that I have never seen it. I officially revoke my emo membership, okay? Can't believe I've never seen this film. And I issue a formal and official apology to everyone who is disappointed in me that I haven't seen this film. I feel like I've let everybody down. I'm not the person that you thought I was. 
but I've rectified it. I've done my best. And we're going to start with likes, as always, with this film review. And my first thing that I wrote while I was watching this was, sorry, this whole thing is a vibe. And it is a vibe. It's very dark. It's rainy. It's in this city that's like a wash with crime. Everybody's a bit grungy and gothy and it's a total vibe. The soundtrack is amazing. In the beginning of the film, we see Eric Draven, who is brutally murdered and his fiance is sexually assaulted and murdered by this gang of men. And you just know that's it. That's the, that's that's all you need to know. Eric Draven, he's going to be killing people left, right and centre. And I, for one, am going to love it. I knew what was going to happen. I knew how the film was going to play out in those first five minutes. I just knew it. Eric Draven and his fiancée Shelley were living every goth kid in the 90s and probably early 2000s dream. They were creatives. They were living in this loft that was covered in candles. They were like passionate. They loved each other so much. They were beautiful people. They were wearing black all the time. I mean, it was just everything that teenage me wanted and more, but without the murder. Although I probably would have thought the murder was really romantic and cool. You know what I mean? I probably would have been like, oh, this whole, I'll be murdered and he'll come back and avenge me. I probably would have been into all that kind of stuff. And that opening sequence where we see their life and we sort of see what happened, this horrific murder, is very much like a music video. That's all I could think of when I was watching it. It is very much like a music video. It reminded me of... um, Turn around. What's that film? That music video was Total Eclipse of the Heart. That's what it reminded me of. I absolutely adored the montage of Eric Draven coming back to life and, you know, figuring out his powers and what has happened to him. And I also adored the fact that he had a snow white cat called Gabriel. I mean, come on, the symbology there is incredible. And a crow. So he was flanked by this snow white cat and then a crow on his shoulder. It was like Vil Velo if he was a superhero, you know, if you know who Vil Velo is. We're on the same wavelength. Also, the sequence of Eric Draven putting on his makeup. Loved it. It was like Brandon Lee walked. So Robert Pattinson as Batman putting on his eyeliner when he sees the bat symbol could run. I also need to give a very honourable mention to the tattoos, which were so 90s. If you have a 90s tribal tattoo, you need to go back and watch this film and just appreciate that these 90s tribal tattoos did exist. They were, they were indeed popular for a while. They were in fact very popular and it was a cool thing to do for a while. I mean, very questionable nowadays, but at the time it was the in thing. You didn't imagine it being the in thing. It's okay. I think one of the things that I enjoyed most about this movie was the fact that when Eric Draven came back and people realised who he was, this man who had died the year before, everybody's like, whoa, Eric, is that you? And Eric's like, yeah, I've come back from the dead and I've got all these powers and I'm back to avenge up my killers. Everybody's just like, oh, hey, yeah, welcome back. It's good to see you. How weird. But, you know, you're here now, so let's just get on with it. Nobody seems remotely worried about the fact that this man, is this zombie, has just come back and has all these powers. The only people who are worried are the bad guys. And they should be worried, to be honest. But everybody else is so blasé about this man coming back from the dead. I found it just astounding. It was staggering how blasé they were about it. The whole film, in general, felt like watching Streets of Rage, the video game, but slightly more gothy and made into a movie. I don't know if that's just me. It was like the backdrop, the bad guys, the Miramax opening credits made me feel like 
It was Streets of Rage. That's what I was feeling the whole way through was real Streets of Rage vibes. And we've got to move on to the dislikes. My number one dislike that I wrote down was that it's a ridiculous film. Come on. It's ridiculous. And I know that people aren't going to like me saying that. Please don't attack me for saying that it's a ridiculous film. But I recognise it's loaded with nostalgia, you know. It's got that otherness that the gothy outsider would feel really at home with and feel like they resonated with. But what this film is, it's a melodrama. And I actually don't think it's very good. (laughs) I'm actually a little bit afraid to say that. I feel like people are going to be banging on my door being like, how dare you? There's going to be an angry mob and there's going to be people who are all dressed up as the crow coming to my door. I thought it was hammy. I thought the acting wasn't very good. The script writing was pretty questionable as well. I mean, there was one moment where a bad guy referred to another bad guy. He had him by the scruff of the neck and he was like, what are you doing, you ass hair? And I thought, oh, is that an insult that was used in the 90s? I mean, maybe it was, but I appreciated it. I really did appreciate it for what it was. I enjoyed the fact that it was a melodrama. I loved the outfits. I loved the whole world of the movie. I loved that there was no nuance in the bad guys characters whatsoever. They were just bad guys. So we rooted for Eric Draven the whole way through. Like I I was celebrating each death, you know what I mean? And the deaths obviously got more and more ludicrous as, as the film went on. And you know, it's not good, but it's also great. I don't know how else to say it. Like it's a it's a love story. He's avenging the love of his life. A crow brings him back from the dead. The bad guys are just terrible. We've got a good cop that you always love to see. We've got this like feisty little street urchin. I mean, listen, all right? Don't be sending me letters of complaint. I thought it was terrible, but also great. I get why people loved it. I get why people resonated with it at the time. I was talking to Sinead about it yesterday and she was saying you know she knew people who kind of based their whole personality around the movie and I could totally see how that would happen. I absolutely know that if I had been slightly older and had been a teenager in the 90s when The Crow came out or seen it when I was a teenager I can guarantee you I would have been based my personality around The Crow for sure. In terms of a score out of five I'm not entirely sure that I know what to score this. I feel like it's a three out of five. However, I'm going to give it a four out of five. The reason is, is that I understand why it has such a cult following. And I also, it's the type of film that I wanted to watch on a projector on a summer's evening where you're a little bit tipsy with your friends and you're cheering every time a bad guy meets his comeuppance. You know, that's, that's kind of how I feel about that film. It's weirdly feel good. So if you haven't seen it, if you're like me, Go and see it. If you have seen it and you haven't seen it in a long time, it is worth a rewatch for sure. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, this story suggestion was sent in by a listener. If that was you, thank you very much. I very unhelpfully didn't write down your name. So if you are the person that suggested this, thank you. Here we are. I've finally gotten around to it. So let's get into it. As many former goths, or in my case, former emo kids know, the graveyard was the aesthetic goal of the crow enthusiast. All I ever wanted was to be able to do moody and ethereal Tumblr-style photo shoots in a very stylish overgrown graveyard, conveniently forgetting the fact that it is, in fact, the resting place for people's loved ones. In any case, 
It seemed only fitting after watching The Crow that we relive the Tumblr graveyard aesthetic and explore some of the world's most haunted graveyards. I've always argued that it seems unlikely that the graveyard would be the place that restless spirits would frequent. Rather, a graveyard reflects our own human fears of mortality. However, there is no denying that there are some graveyards that have some very interesting stories. And the first stop on our journey takes us to Barbados. The vault was built in 1724 and stood atop a hill in Christ Church Parish Cemetery, overlooking the Caribbean. It was, by all accounts, a beautiful resting place. The cemetery was an ancient colonial cemetery near the village of Austin, on the southern coast of the island. It was a beautiful, sun-kissed paradise on earth, and the vault was a thing of beauty. It was built half-sunken into the ground out of compacted coral blocks taken from the foundations of the island itself and mixed with cement. Stone steps descended into the ground and into the entrance of the stone structure. The dark hole of the entrance was sealed with a huge slab of blue marble that required seven men to move it. Once the entrance was sealed, there was no getting in and no getting out. The vault had been standing for almost a hundred years when it was bought by the Chase family to use as a family tomb. It had been used once in the 100 years for the burial of a Thomasina Goddard. The Chase family were notorious in the community. Colonel Thomas Chase was hated, completely and utterly hated. He dealt in slaves and treated them with such abject and brutal cruelty that the slaves rose up against him and threatened to kill him at one point. He was known in the community for wildly eccentric behaviour and his vicious temper. By the time he purchased the vault, it had only been used once in its 100 years and had been worn and weathered by the wind and the salt from the sea. It wasn't long after the family purchased the vault that it was used by them for the first time. Mary Ann Chase, died at the tender age of two years old. Her lead casket was placed in the vault, but tragically, it would not be long before the vault needed to be used again. Four years later, Dorcas Chase, the older sister of Mary Ann, died. She was just a teenager. It was said in the local community that Dorcas developed severe anorexia as a result of the treatment she received at the hands of her father, and she eventually succumbed to her illness. Again, the marble slab was moved from the entrance and a lead coffin carried into the darkness of the vault. Colonel Thomas Chase interred two of his daughters in the vault, and one month after Dorcas's death, he took his own life. The problem started when it was time for his lead coffin to be interred into the crypt. On a hot, sunny day, Seven men sweated and grunted as they slid the marble slab away from the doorway. They then shouldered the lead coffin and slowly descended into the tomb. The panic was somehow palpable and rippled from the first pallbearer to the last. The coffins of Marianne and Dorcas had moved. They were no longer in their original resting spot and were now scattered in the corners of the tomb. Dorcas's coffin 
was standing on its head, leaned against the wall. Mary Ann's was strewn in another corner. The colonel's coffin was lowered into position and the pallbearers looked at each other in silence and looked at the coffins scattered around. They knew how heavy the lead coffins were that bore the remains of the chaste children. Some of the pallbearers had been pallbearers for their coffins too. They knew how hard it was to move the marble slab from the entrance to the crypt. And yet here were the coffins of Mary Ann and Dorcas, slung in the corners, as though moved with ease by the hands of a giant. Was it possible that a coordinated effort was made by a group of people to sneak into the tomb and move the coffin? But why? Why would anyone do that? There was no sign that the coffins had been tampered with and nothing had been stolen. Without an answer to their question, they struggled and strained to drag and push the marble slab over the door to the tomb and closed it up extra tight. The incident was strange, but the people soon forgot about it. And though Manny would only admit it in quiet whispers, they were more so pleased that the colonel was dead, rather than worried about the strange incident with the coffin. The tomb sat quiet and still, overlooking the sea. In 1816, the tomb was once again opened in order to inter the body of 11-year-old Charles Brewster Ames. For some, the memory of the scattered coffins was at the forefront of their mind as they strained to move the slab from the entrance. And their fears were confirmed as they entered the cold, dark tomb. All of the coffins had been flung around, including the huge coffin that held the remains of the colonel. Again, there was no signs of any tampering with the entrance to the tomb or the coffins themselves. The coffins were lead. They were heavy. And here they lay thrown around as though someone or something with inhuman strength had thrown them with ease. This time it was harder to ignore. The people in the community began to talk and wonder what was happening in the Chase family vault. Was it dark magic or something worse? The fears were magnified when a woman had a shocking experience in the graveyard. She was riding through the graveyard and as she approached the vault, her horse became distressed, snorting and pawing the ground. She tried to soothe the horse and wondered if there was a dog or another animal nearby that was spooking the animal. Her musings would soon be answered when a wild shriek pierced the air. The horse panicked. She panicked. It wasn't an animal, and that sound, although it was nothing like she'd ever heard before, it had a strange human quality to it. Her horse was bucking now, foaming at the mouth, and she had no option but to spur it on, and the horse galloped wildly from the graveyard. The shriek that she had heard had come from the Chase family vault. Her horse only calmed down when it was far enough away from the vault, And over the next few days, something even stranger happened. A number of horses in the local area simultaneously threw themselves into the bay and drowned. And nobody could figure out why. Two months later, the tomb was reopened for the lead casket of Samuel Brewster. And again, the coffins were found slung around. And I need to be really clear here. 
These were not just moved slightly. They were in completely different parts of the tomb and in completely different positions than their original resting position. Again in 1819, a Thomasina Clark died and her body was taken to the vault and again the vault was in disarray. Except in each case there was one coffin that wasn't moved. Each and every time the tomb was opened and the lead coffins of the Chase family were found scattered, the humble wooden casket of Thomasina Goddard, the original occupant of the tomb, remained stoically in place, completely untouched. She was of no relation to the Chase family. By this point, the governor of Barbados sat up and paid attention. Lord Cumbermere had been present at the funeral of Thomasina Clark and had witnessed the caskets slung around the tomb. He ordered an official investigation in which every part of the tomb was sounded out to ensure that there was no secret subterranean passages or some sort of concealed entrance. There wasn't. There weren't even any cracks. The vault was secure. The floor of the vault was then covered in a fine white sand in order to try and capture any footsteps of would-be vandals. And to top it all off, the tomb entrance was now sealed with cement and the governor put impressions of his signet ring into the wet cement to discourage vandals and to signify if the seal of the tomb had been broken before it officially needed to be opened again. In 1820, the decision was made to reopen the vault. The governor arrived at the vault with a team of men and were relieved to find that the cement around the marble slab was untouched. The impressions of the governor's ring were there unscathed. But still the decision was made to open the vault anyway, just to see. The cement sealing the marble was chipped and cracked away and the slab was moved and the party descended into the vault confident that no one had entered the tomb. Something was very clearly wrong. The sand was settled and pristine, having not been touched. But the coffins were again slung around. The colonel's coffin was thrown against the entrance to the tomb, almost as if to block the men's way into the vault. It was worse than before. Marianne's coffin had been thrown against the wall with such force that a piece had broken off the corner. The people were perplexed. Nathan Lucas, a member of the Barbados House of Assembly, later spoke about the incident and said, I examined the walls, the arch, and every part of the vault, and found every part old and similar. And a mason in my presence struck every part of the bottom with his hammer, and all was solid. I confess myself at a loss to account for the movements of these leaden coffins, Thieves certainly had no hand in it, and as for any practical wit or hoax, too many were requisite to be trusted with the secret for it to remain unknown. And as for local people having anything to do with it, their superstitious fear of the dead, and everything belonging to them, precludes any idea of the kind. All I know is that it happened, and that I was an eyewitness of the fact. The governor acted fast and ordered that all of the bodies to be removed from the vault and reburied in the cemetery, 
the vault was ordered to remain empty and open and was never used again. And it remains empty and open to this day. So what happened in the Chase family vault? The first theory is that there was some sort of seismic activity that was causing the coffins to move. But Barbados is not a seismically active island and none of the other tombs or vaults were impacted in the same way. If it was seismic, then there would have been some damage to other tombs or vaults. It was very clear from the descriptions that there was no sign of vandalism or human interference. The other suggestion is that the coffins floated in the vault and therefore were moved around following heavy rainfall. While it may be considered that it would be impossible that these heavy lead coffins would float around, the Skeptoid podcast did some calculations, none of which I understood, and established that the coffins could float depending on the amount of water present. But is it likely that enough water would fill the vault on that regular a basis that the lead coffins would not only float, but the volume of water would be that large that the coffins would end up leaning lengthways against the wall when the water eventually receded? What I think it's entirely possible and plausible that flooding was a part of the reason. I just don't know if I fully accept it as the reason. But here's the real kicker for this story. Were there ever coffins in the vault at all? The people mentioned in the story absolutely died at the times listed in the story. Death records prove that. But all of the accounts about the moving coffins are second-hand accounts, allegedly read in memoirs and newspaper articles. But there are no remaining first-hand accounts left. One of the accounts that is often referenced is that the governor of the island wrote about the incident in his memoirs, but his memoirs don't exist anymore. And there is an identical story that was allegedly recorded on an island off Estonia. The events are almost perfectly aligned. And I wonder if the Chase family were so hated that the stories became conflated. Colonel Chase was a menace in life, And maybe it was nice to believe that he got no peace in death. As I said, there were incidents elsewhere in the world that were of a similar nature. In the mid-18th century in Staunton in England, coffins were found disturbed on three occasions in a vault belonging to a family named French. One of the displaced coffins was so heavy that eight men were required to move it back to its proper position. Flooding was advanced as a cause, though the vault showed no signs of having held water at the times it was opened. Similarly, coffins were found in disarray twice in the Gretford family vault near Stamford in England in the early 19th century. Water was again supposed as the cause, though no signs of it were found. The case that I just mentioned on an island off Estonia occurred in 1844, on an island now called Serema, located in the Baltic Sea, the home of a largely Lutheran population. In 1844, horses tethered near the vault became frantic when a loud crash was heard to emanate from within the crypt. Subsequently, other loud crashes were heard. When the vault was opened for a burial, several coffins were found scattered around and even lying one on top of the other. Three were not disturbed. They contained the body of an old woman said to have been very devout and the bodies of two young children. 
villagers inferred that demonic forces were responsible, since the coffins of the devout and the pure were untouched. Such popular excitement ensued that a commission was appointed to investigate. The coffins were restored to order, the pavement was torn up to make certain there were no secret access points to the vault, the vault's floor and steps were covered with fine ash to reveal footprints of intruders, and guards were posted around the clock. After three days, the vault was reopened. According to anecdotal accounts, all coffins but the three were scattered about in even greater confusion. The ash was undisturbed. Many coffins had been set on end, so that the heads of the corpses faced downward. The lid of one coffin had been forced open, and a shriveled right arm poked out. The deceased had committed suicide by cutting his throat with a razor. The blood-stained tool allegedly was found clutched in his right hand. According to religious observances at the time, suicides were not to be buried on hallowed ground. The family apparently had conducted a normal burial, hoping to hush up the tragedy. The family then buried each coffin separately. There were no further disturbances. An official report by the commission was alleged to have been written, but could not be located by later investigators. But moving coffins in Barbados and in Estonia are not the only powerful and violent poltergeists lurking in graveyards around the world. But in order to explore the most violent and possibly well-documented haunted graveyard in the world, we need to move a little bit closer to home. And you need to tune in to next week's episode because there's just too much information for one episode and this really needs a proper exploration. Sorry to be that guy, but it's a two-parter. The reason it's a two-parter is because there was just so much information on the second story that it was ended up being like, it was definitely going to be about an hour and a half long episode. So we're, we're, we're splitting it into a two-parter. There we go. So I've got tons of thoughts about this and I firstly need to kind of reference my sources because they are going to be heavily influencing my thoughts about it. And that was the Skeptoid podcast. The link is in the description and Mysterious Universe who did an article about this particular story. And when I reference Mysterious Universe, by the way, just to be really clear, I'm not actually referencing the podcast. It's the website. I've only kind of sort of recently learned that there's a Mysterious Universe podcast. Um, I, I, I use the mysterious universe um articles and you kind of i pay them a certain amount a month and they have articles about all manner of different paranormal cases and as always the links to everything are in the description of this episode so the first thing that is really interesting about this is that there are a a, a very substantial amount of missing first person accounts so there are lots of references to first-hand accounts so people will say you know, the the governor's wife wrote in her memoir all about this case and they will quote it. But then there's no way of finding where that original memoir is. And also the quote from Nathan Lucas, who was a member of the Barbados House of Assembly, spoke about the incident, etc, etc. But there is no where to find where he originally spoke about this incident. And I just kind of think it's probably necessary to point out that some of those first-hand, alleged first-hand witness accounts, they do contain some really horrific language. So just to be aware, in case you go looking for them, some of the language is truly horrendous, racist and awful. And with that being said, the Skeptoid podcast talked about how 
the uh, case in Estonia was remarkably similar and it is incredibly similar. So the case in Barbados was meant to have happened in the early 1800s and the case in Estonia happened in 1844. So these two really similar accounts exist and it is entirely possible that one or the other happened and it was conflated with the other story, if that makes sense. So I think it's entirely possible that something happened in Barbados and then the story travelled to Estonia over time, either by word of mouth or was read in a memoir or was written in a letter and then the story got transferred to Estonia, if that makes sense. I mean, we see it all the time with variations of urban legends that exist, etc., etc. And there is the question about, because these two stories appear on opposite sides of the world, very similarly, were these just moral tales? So Colonel Chase was very much hated, and by all accounts, sounds like he was an absolutely horrendous human being. Horrendous. It is obviously very possible that the bit, for example, about his daughter dying because of anorexia, because of her treatment at his hands, it is possible that those bits are added on for dramatic effect after the fact. But is it possible that he treated other human beings so horrifically while he was alive that when he died, this story kind of sprung up about not being able to rest even in death? And that was kind of his comeuppance for the way that he treated people? Because I'm sure if you were in that community watching this man treating people around you horrendously, getting away with it, there's no comeuppance for his actions, you'd want to have some sort of reckoning where this man has paid for his actions. And short of Eric Draven rising from the dead with a crow on his shoulder and kicking the shit out of people, what better way to get revenge than not even be getting peace in the afterlife, you know? And I think the bit that lends itself to it being maybe a moral tale is also the Estonian story that has the addition of the man who apparently took his own life and he still had the razor blade in his coffin and then it was discovered and of course at the time there was a belief that you couldn't bury people who took their own life in consecrated ground and the implication from the Estonian story seems to be that that was the cause for all of the upset which would have been a moral tale it would have been like look look what happens if you take your own life and you try and bury that person on consecrated ground which is awful. I mean, we don't need to talk about how horrendous that idea is, but it existed for a very long time. So I do believe there's an element of these stories maybe being kind of urban legends, you know, moral tales that are designed to teach us something about life or teach us something about religion or how we treat people in the life that we're living. But there is something about the original story from Barbados that really captures me. And I just think that people weren't stupid. They would have known if it was flooding that was causing the coffins to move around. I fully accept that the coffins would have floated with a certain amount of water, but there would have surely been evidence that at points the vault was becoming waterlogged, whether that was moss that was growing or, you know, something would have something would have shown the people, oh, the coffins are moving around, but it's because the vault is filling with water at various points. Or was the fact that there was allegedly no sign of any water damage was that added later to make the story more compelling? You just don't know with these old stories about what is true, like what actually factually happened. Like, for example, we know that these people lived and died on the island of Barbados, but then you don't know what was added afterwards, what people added to make the story more interesting, and then what became canon in the telling of the story that has actually just been added by people wanting to make it more dramatic and exciting. It's really hard to know. 
And if it isn't seismic activity or water or vandals, and I don't believe it was vandals, actually. It's one of the things I don't believe about this story is that whatever happened, I don't think people were breaking in to fling coffins around. If it's not those things, and if it is not a moral tale, if it is a true story, then how the heck did that happen? What was happening? Was it the original guy who built the vault? Was it his, you know, angry spirit or whatever, not happy with the Chase family using the vault because of the man that Colonel Thomas Chase was? Was the original owner of the vault thinking absolutely no way are this family being laid to rest in my vault and I will not rest until their coffins are taken out of it and buried somewhere else? Is that the possibility? And then when I was researching about this story, again from the Skeptoid podcast, there was a researcher named Joe Nickel who wrote all about the moving coffins in 1982 and he claimed that it was all about the Freemasons and Freemason symbology and it was actually a Freemason <laughs> story. And now look, every time I look up the Freemasons, I don't fully understand what it is, so I'm not even going to try to go into it. But, you know, there's lots of there's lots of layers to what seems like a pretty straightforward story. There's lots of layers to it. And here's my thoughts behind it. I actually think this is probably a true story that has been carried to different places around the world and then has been conflated with stories within that particular place. I think something happened in that vault. But I wonder if there is a combination of something happening that probably has a rational explanation being combined with the perfect opportunity for a moral tale. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Remember to tune into next week's episode to listen to the part two about haunted graveyards. Remember, if you want to vote for Real Life Ghost Stories in the Listener's Choice Award for the British Podcast Awards, you can do so by going to britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. This is the only time I'm going to mention it aside from the approach of the deadline, at which point I'll give a little reminder and ask people to vote again. But just if you're voting for Real Life Ghost Stories, brilliant. If you don't want to vote for Real Life Ghost Stories, please vote for any indie podcast that you listen to. Remember, you can vote for more than one podcast. If you want to find out anything about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. And if you're desperate for some extra content, you can go to patreon.com forward slash stories, where for $5 a month, or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content and all of the main and mini episodes completely ad free. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please don't hate me for not liking The Crow as much as everybody else does. And on that note, I shall see you next time. <laughs>